Welcome back to my channel. I'm Coach DJ. I've got Kurt Havens with me here today. What's up? Today, we are going to talk about something not quite as exciting as, you know, anabolic design and structure, but uh, just equally, if not more important, some of the lifestyle changes, habits, and maybe nutrition and supplements that people can utilize, uh, maybe when using TRT or in a prep to kind of help uh, preserve certain health markers during this time period. Cool. So where where do we want to kick off with this? Do you want are you want to focus more on women or on men or on both? A lot of them there's think, overlap between the two. I think both. And re realistically, what I and I'm sure you see a lot of this too, especially in terms of just standard TRT. We see people that say, "Hey, I want to get healthy. I want to lose a little bit of weight," and they kind of do things backwards instead of getting more active and prioritizing protein and watching what they eat, they start testosterone and kind of see how far they can ride that out. And then when they, they hit a perceived plateau where they're not getting the results they expected, then they start looking into what can they change in terms of training and nutrition. True. Yeah. I mean, it makes sense. It is the opposite of what should occur though, right? I mean, both you and I probably started in a place of health and fitness first and then you would look at hormones later when they start to decline, not as the primary way to remedy being out of shape. I think one of the things that a lot of people tend to overlook is we talk about foundation work all the time. And even when we're talking about creating cycles or getting into polypharmacy, we always talk about a foundation, but that has to, there's a big role in foundation before the anabolics, before TRT, uh, even before leveraging testosterone, you you simply have to make sure you do have your training in place. And if the goal is to lose body fat, rather than depending on pharmaceutical compounds or artificially inflating your BMR, then we have to see what we're eating, aim for a calorie deficit. And if you want to grow, so many people do not eat enough food to have that ability. They're, they're yep. drastically under eating. And again, they kind of skip all of those foundation steps and then they turn to hopefully increasing te testosterone with hopes that that will take care of what they didn't have set up before. So I think that the biggest thing is kind of setting up a good foundation in terms of hormones. A lot of people don't check their hormones before starting exogenous hormones either. We don't really know what we're trying to correct, what the baseline looks like, what approach you should take. They just immediately implement testosterone. They're not in a specific deficit or surplus. None of that is put together. Okay. So that's interesting. So that, I guess that would be the approach of someone going to do this to an underground lab on their own, right? Outside of a physician. I think and I, I see it in both situations, okay. honestly, like I, I've seen people that will get their lab work, get a TRT prescription and make no other lifestyle changes okay. at all. Or somebody that just says like, Hey, I don't like my body. I don't like how I feel. I must have low testosterone. It's hmm. not that I live off gas station hot dogs. It's not that I get four hours of sleep a night. I must have low testosterone. My buddy gets this. I'm going to start taking it. Of course. Right. And they assume that at the actual TRT level, that it's some groundbreaking thing that it's going to yes. you know, completely transform their entire life. Cool. I think that there's a huge value in TRT. I think from a physical output stance, though, it's not going to change the way you look immediately, it's more of a long-term thing, right? It would be like using growth hormone over time. It's not a dramatic, immediate change. The only people that 
that I know, like group of people that see a, a relatively fast change from TRT level testosterone are people that are obese. If they, assuming that they're not huge aromatizers or you manage your estrogen, they seem to lose body fat very well on low amounts of testosterone versus like your average middle-aged guy. It'll improve his cognition, his sexual function, and a lot of other metrics, but it's not going to. I don't think it's going to change their physical aspect without them changing diet, exercise, just general lifestyle stuff, like you said. I think. So it, when you get, like when you get, let's say you have um, a new client, they are on TRT. And when we say TRT, I would like to point out we are, we are meaning like testosterone replacement therapy. We're not talking about grams of gear and additional anabolics. We are just on testosterone, maybe anywhere from 120 to maybe 250 milligrams mm -hmm. a week. You get this client in terms of structuring nutrition to support health, because that's always going to be mm -hmm. prioritized. Whether you are a bodybuilder or you're just trying to make better changes, health is going to be prioritized. What type of things do you personally make sure you are implementing with their nutrition or the changes that you have to make based on their prior nutrition? So with the uh, calorie wise, we're looking at weight loss. Yeah, well, we can use weight loss. Okay. So I would say for, for weight loss, typically, you know, the rough math is to lose a pound a week. You need to be in a 500 calorie a day deficit. Um, but it could be less than that, depending on the goal, right? You could be in a slight deficit, a 200 calorie, 300 calorie deficit a day. Uh, and the same with trying to grow muscle. We do the opposite is that I don't think people, I don't think people eat enough to grow muscle, but I don't think they need to eat this like huge abundance of food either. Right. Like you're not trying to mimic what the, the local, you know, pro football player eats. Um, I think the things that I would look at first are protein consumption. So the, the silly recommendation from the RDA on protein is way too low. That's just to prevent disease. And it's been shown time and time again in different populations, actually, especially in women, when you increase the protein to an adequate amount, they actually lose body fat and gain muscle. Even when calories are equated and exercise is non-existent. Um, so protein would be the first one I would look at after, you know, basic calories, fiber is hugely important. And I think, you know, in the right place doesn't need to be this massive amount either, but it needs to be there and present. I think essential fatty acids, which you generally would have to supplement from. I don't think most people are eating either enough grass fed and finished meat or enough wild caught fish in a week that they can go without it. Um, and then I think that becomes adequate energy then to support the goals, whether it's fat loss or not. And generally for someone who's athletic, assuming that they're not diabetic or have some other metabolic reason why they can't eat carbohydrates, I would fill most of the calorie requirements with carbohydrates. And then I would use um, dietary fat to support things like getting those essential fatty acids in. And typically, you know, when we look at our best sources for omega fatty acids, especially, especially with the types of nutrition plans that you would be utilizing with, with our clients, we're really not getting great sources. So it almost always has to be supplemented. I think you and I probably spend a lot of time discussing omegas, uh, specifically omega and taking the, the importance of it and the roles it can have, but most people are going to benefit greatly from that. And when we look at some of the potential risks and issues that people may experience with elevated androgen use, omegas can be one of those really important things that we incorporate. I think people really tend to overlook how, how big of a role diet plays in some of those side effects that they, they may see with the use of testosterone. 
Absolutely. So, well, I mean, a tree or a plant grows better in healthy soil than it does in depleted soil. It's the same as our body, right? It's going to lose fat better or grow muscle better if, if, you, if you get all the nutrients that, your human, that the human body needs in order to survive. And in terms of body composition too, I used to think that this was an issue that I would see primarily with the female demographic, but now I'm, I see that it's, it's an issue across the board is lack of protein. And how many, how many people want to start anabolics because they feel like they've plateaued, they're not recovering well, they can't grow any muscle. But then I have males, average size males that are eating 120 to 150 grams of protein a day, mostly through shakes. And then females telling me that they eat really high protein, but they're eating 100 grams. And I don't think necessarily when we look at the recommended dietary intake for certain foods and macronutrients, it's really not going to be the same thing as what we're utilizing to capitalize on, not only with the use of exogenous hormones, but just for muscle retention and development in general. Because what we're trying to strive for is technically unnatural. We're trying to be lean and muscular. Those things don't go together. Not what nature wants at all. And then when we're dieting, you know, we're constantly putting our body under more stress. So that's, you know, we're continuing to strength train. So what we're doing in general is unnatural. And I I don't think people understand that they might have to make dietary adjustments to get the results they're striving for, even if it doesn't necessarily coincide with what we're conventionally doing in terms of health and wellness. Mm -hmm. So with testosterone, the biggest issues and concerns we tend to have, we'll see people that might have blood pressure management issues, generally predisposed, um, issues with blood viscosity, increased EPO production. Uh, what else do we see with the testo- uh, estrogen conversion? Estrogen conversion and cholesterol. Cholesterol. So what blood do you do in terms of... Not direct. We start with, in terms of like blood pressure, blood viscosity, what are some things that you typically implement? Well, it, is the blood viscosity actually changing from the, from the HRT, the TRT, or is it, is it the labs are performed incorrectly, right? So when- I almost always see it's usually poor hydration. And if it's, yeah, that's I don't know how you feel about it. If we see slightly elevated RBC, that, and that's, and it's, it's independent, we don't see any other elevations. I don't treat that any differently than somebody no. that lives at high altitude, but I don't pay attention to that. I think the the misconception when when doctors tell patients or nurses tell patients to be fasted for blood work, that doesn't mean you need to be dehydrated. It's the, the mm-hmm. reason, again, this, this might not be a popular answer, but the reason why we're taught to tell patients to be fasted for blood work is because what they eat before their blood work will affect their blood work, notably uh, like things like cholesterol. So if you were to eat a bacon, egg, and cheese from Dunkin' Donuts and go get your blood drawn, your cholesterol will immediately be skewed. Versus if you just ate a low-fat yogurt, it's most likely not going to affect anything. Mm -hmm. Your blood sugar will be shifted from these things. But again, if it's noted that you're not fasted, it's not a big deal. Um, But that, that being said, if you're going in fasted, doesn't mean you shouldn't go in hydrated. I think you should definitely go in hydrated because that will skew your blood viscosity, right? If you've now gone eight hours of sleep, assuming you actually get eight hours of sleep, and then you go in, now you've not drank water in nine or 10 hours, your blood is going to be much thicker. And typically I find if somebody's not eating in the morning and intentionally, and you just say the word fasted, a lot of people just don't know that they can drink water. It can be a matter of just forgetting because you're not pairing it with food and not everybody's chugging water all day like we are. Um, 
or they just, they, they think fasted means absolutely nothing for the, for yeah. blood work purposes. Well, because, so they are following instructions, but then when we get that blood work back, it's not always entirely accurate. And then we, I see a lot of people that are unnecessarily engaging in therapeutic phlebotomy on a very frequent Correct. basis. Yeah. And you're losing some of the performance benefits of increased hormones by doing that. And it's, and this is another one. If blood viscosity is truly an issue for someone, I find that it, it's probably going to be, it'll normally be problematic prior to the introduction or, or increase in other, other androgens as well. But omega fatty acids, vitamin E, mm -hmm. even small things like, like turmeric, there's other things that you, you can utilize because there's so much. And again, blood work can look scary when you get those labs back, especially if maybe you are doing this independently, you maybe don't have physician oversight, but you are trying to do this responsibly and you're pulling labs and then they come back and there's red numbers on there. It's terrifying especially if you don't have someone guiding you through that process or maybe explaining it and asking the follow-up questions of, hey, did you drink water before you went in or did you go to bed at 8 p.m.? And this is how we're, how we're pulling the labs. But a lot of these things, there are over-the-counter solutions that can help with this that so many people overlook. And again, we're, we've kind of created a, a culture, especially within the bodybuilding realm where We've accepted people are using performance enhancing drugs. Now we come up with mitigation tactics. And this is where we kind of see the overprescription and overuse of ARBs for yep. people that probably don't, don't actually need them. There's, there's no hypertension issues. And then they're trying to use it as, as a way to handle blood viscosity. They're taking ARBs at 22 years old when they could have just taken omegas yep. and drank water before their labs. Or they're using ARBs for elevated blood pressure that's due to other things and not blood pressure innately so if, right if you're not prone to that if that, that was not the cause before or wasn't the case beforehand most likely it's not the cause from testosterone it's it would be estrogen or other things like that that should be looked at not just right like telemisartan should not be used prophylactically by a 20 year old man on trt first of all i don't know i'm not sure, quite sure why there are so many 20 year olds on trt to begin with but it shouldn't be used drugs like that. That's, that's not the root cause of these issues, right? But doctors, the trend in the market is to stay away from the estrogen issue and they want to do everything else they can outside of that. Now, in terms of estrogen, cause that is a really big one. And I know you talk about estrogen frequently, and I'd say 99% of the questions we get are regarding estrogen. I have found a lot of people, especially when beginning TRT, might struggle with a slight increase in E2. And obviously we have an increased rate of aromatization, that's that's to be expected. But a lot of times I see an elevation that there's other things that can help control that. We don't always necessarily have to jump straight to an aromatase inhibitor. I still see physicians prescribing injections once every two weeks. Yeah. Yeah, so a frequency of injection, the size of the injection, right? If you were the, someone who's a, a heavy aromatizer, I would typically have them inject more frequently, the smaller doses, split the total weekly dose up into daily. You can always use an insulin needle and do it that way. That generally will prevent a lot of the DHT and estrogen issues that are associated with bigger doses. Yeah, there is no ester that I'm aware of uh, that should be used every other week. That's not an appropriate use of testosterone, right? Even a decaconate is not an appropriate thing. I wouldn't use that. Even with a half-life of 14 days, supposedly, I wouldn't be using that 
uh, every two weeks. So with cipionate is the standard ester prescribed in the United States. That that has an estimated half-life of somewhere between six and eight days. I, it should be injected twice a week, a minimum. When you when we talk about injection frequency as well, obviously this is not going to apply to those that are you know u- using this strictly for performance enhancement and on large quantities. Um, there's going to be some limitations in terms of what you can do, especially with subcutaneous injections as well. And there seems to be a lot of if you actually even just take it to Google or a Reddit forum or like these places where a lot of people are getting information. Um, as a rule of thumb, if I have someone that maybe isn't an ideal body composition, we are aromatizing, but it's not to the degree where I would necessarily want to jump straight to an AI. I'd like to change administration and see if we have an improvement. Mm-hmm. I will go to more frequent subcutaneous injections, but a lot of people have been told to avoid that because they've been told that there's more aromatase enzyme activity and adipose tissue. So if you inject adipose tissue, you will aromatize quicker, but that's not the case. It's, it's, it's metabolized differently. It's much, it's actually more ideal to do more it's frequent subcutaneous days. injections. Yeah. It's, Obviously it, if you're on a lot, you can't, but it's, yeah, it's the same. It's the same theory. It gets confusing and doctors get confused with this stuff too. It's the same theory as injecting sub Q versus IM for anything. It doesn't necessarily interact with the immediate area that the injection goes into that depot still needs to, there's still the ester, the, what is slow in the release still needs to be cleaved off by esterases, which is the enzyme that's going to cleave that off and release into the bloodstream. So it becomes systemic regardless. It's not interacting with the immediate area. Like it's not interacting with adipose tissue just because you put it sub Q. It's not interacting with your gluteal muscle because that's where you injected it. Otherwise, uh, like I would have an enormous butt from, you know, tens of thousands of milligrams of testosterone placed at that. If that were the case, I would be injecting my glutes every day. Exactly. (laughs) And unfortunately it doesn't work that way. You can't spot inject, right? There is some level of inflammation that occurs in a spot injection, but that's not, the inflammation is not muscle growth. That's kind of a, we could do a whole video just on spot injections. Um, yeah, I would definitely use those, those protocols first, but again, depending on where estrogen is, there's nothing wrong with using an AI, right? For some reason in the market now, everyone is against using an AI when this is a drug that's, these are a class of drugs that have been, this is what they're designed for. And they're fearful of it. It's it. I mean, it's really ingrained that AIs are terrible. I would be more fearful of having super high estrogen as a man than I would be of using an AI. You want your estrogen in range. We're not talking about pro bodybuilder level where your androgen load is really high in the thousands of nanograms versus, and then you can have a slightly elevated estrogen level. At that point, I still would keep it, you know, I wouldn't let it go too high, but for someone on TRT, if you're, if you're, Average testosterone level is, you know, 900 or a thousand nanograms per deciliter. You don't really need an estradiol of over 40. I don't understand why you would ever let it go higher than that. It's going to make losing body fat much more difficult. It's going to cause weird body fat storage issues. It's going to, emotional issues. It doesn't, it makes no sense to me to let estrogen ride so high. It's going to slow your thyroid down. And it is a pop. I mean, I got several comments yesterday. I made, I made a video on estrogen management and somebody had immediately commented that you're not supposed to treat it unless you get gyno, like unless it starts causing noticeable issues, you should not treat it. And they were, that was, they presented that as like a hard fact. And then someone else had mentioned that they were scared of AIs because their doctors had basically put them off from it, from their prescribing clinic and that they shouldn't ever be taken. And then someone said, well, 
estrogen is anabolic. So unless I'm getting gyno, why should I not let my estrogen get as high as possible? And unfortunately, I think we hear people hear select bits and pieces, and then the interpretation gets really skewed. And this is why we end up with men that are now intentionally trying to increase their estrogen. So estrogen is not anabolic on its own in the classic sense, right? It's not building muscle tissue. It contributes to bone anabolism and some other tissues, but not muscle directly. It is not anabolic in men. It is not anabolic in women. It's not what causes muscle growth in you. That would be progesterone, right? This is why nandrolone is a naturally occurring hormone in a very small amount in pregnant women, because that's what's allowing the fetus to grow. It's not some elevated level of estrogen that's causing the baby to grow. Um, it's letting, beside the reasons that I just mentioned about elevated estrogen, it's not doing anything positive. It, it does protect your organs to a, an extent, but that is within range. That is not some elevated level that's doing this. Where this came from, some doctors started playing with letting estrogen rise higher a few years ago, and then it became this absurd thing. And then you had social influencers that, would, that were basically talking about some advanced way to leverage testosterone where they would use testosterone as a base for a stack of things and keep the dose lower because at that point, all testosterone is doing is providing estrogen when, it's, when there's other anabolics in the case, mm -hmm. in, the, in the stack, and then letting the other anabolics drive anabolism. And they were saying, don't squash the estrogen, which makes sense. If you're, if you're just using testosterone for estrogen, why would you crush the estrogen? But in someone who is on TRT, that's a totally different scenario than someone that's using performance enhancing drugs and understands how to leverage different things. It's the estrogen needs to be managed in an appropriate way. That doesn't mean all the time they need to be on an AI. It doesn't mean that an AI is always used. It just means keep your estrogen appropriately ranged, right? In and the, do what you need to do to achieve that. Like I'm a yeah. huge fan of what can we do in terms of lifestyle changes and nutrition to, to manage certain yeah. things. And if like you I'm can't a manage huge it through that, proponent. Then you, then you find other ways to manage it. There is nothing... This is kind of like something that you and I look at all the time. I am not aware of any hard studies that show that drugs like Arimidex cause any actual harm. So I, I'm not sure what these doctors are saying. need it. One yeah, of the things need, that I'm seeing it. now is men that are struggling with estrogen. And I don't mean like maybe we're 50 with a total test of, I don't know, 800 or something, but you know, slight, slightly struggling. They're being told to just eat more cruciferous vegetables. And I think it's also important to realize that as much as we advocate for trying to handle things, you know, from a foundation perspective, if you need, if you need pharmaceutical interference, you do, there's nothing that's going to change that. And eating a ton of cruciferous vegetables in theory to increase dim intake is really not going to be the same thing as taking an AI. Those are no. not interchangeable no, at and all. Dim and I see a lot of people just trying to shove a lot of broccoli into their day trying thinking it's going to have a drastic impact dim has interactions with the androgen receptor as well too so increasing dim for a man is not necessarily this it, can be, it can be negative either. yeah and so it's and nothing again nothing wrong with i'm not against eating cruiser uh you know things like broccoli but increasing trying to increase it that way and also saying you're against using pharmaceutical drugs like arimidex but yet you're on a pharmaceutical drug like testosterone it doesn't make any sense right use the appropriate drugs for the appropriate situation, right? They're just tools in a toolbox. They're not always needed, but sometimes they are needed. And in that case, it would be appropriate to use. And now in terms of lipids, I don't know if you can 
don't know if the audio is picking up on my very, I don't know, shutters. Uh, but uh, in terms of lipid management, a lot, I would say 99% is going to come from diet. What do you, if you get someone and maybe we have reduced HDL for whatever reason, we have elevations in LDL, cholesterol may or may not be within range, same with triglycerides. What are some approaches that you automatically implement when you see that on lab work with or without testosterone in use? Okay. So generally, well, without testosterone, um, kind of a, a sweeping overview is HDL a lot of times is affected by hormones. Estrogen specifically will affect HDL in men and women. That's one of the reasons why you don't see heart issues in women until they're postmenopausal. It's because they have an elevated level of estrogen. Now, again, I'm, I'm not flipping back on my story. There is an amount of estrogen that's needed for health. That doesn't mean that it's out of range. Um, so a lot of times HDL will, so HDL will drop then on testosterone because of the DHT component. So androgens interact. That is a non-genomic or an androgenic effect of testosterone as it interacts with the liver and its production of cholesterol. D and DHT does that specifically. Testosterone, one of the things it turns to is DHT. So that's, that's a great place to make sure that estrogen is in the right range for HDL. Um, LDL tends to be more lifestyle related things, lack of fiber, lack of exercise, too much um, refined garbage, too much saturated fat. Um, but again, cholesterol in and of itself is more important as an overall like APOB or ratio and triglycerides, not just as any one of the markers, right? Like a cardiologist will say that all the cholesterol markers are independent risk factors for heart disease, but yet that's not incorrect, but it's not necessarily correct. Just having low HDL on its own is not necessarily going to cause mm -hmm. heart disease. It's a contributing factor to a bigger picture. Um, but lifestyle changes like increase your cardio, eat more fiber, um, things like that will, you know, making sure estrogen with the range should fix most of the cholesterol issues. What about you? Anything else that you do immediately? The two main ones that you said so casually are so overlooked. I, I can't tell you how many people are against adding cardio or just won't. I It's usually one of two things. It's I have a set amount of time in the gym. I want to capitalize on it for, for, for gains and they only want to lift or, and so they're just not doing the cardio or they're, they're terrified that it will impact them negatively. But I'm like, well, man, you're like 30% body fat. Like you doing some cardio isn't going to hurt anything. It's not going to negatively impact your, your muscle development or retention to throw in a little bit of steady state cardio post lift or separately. And I think a lot of people, it's, it's not always fun to make certain dietary changes. I like to implement plant-based fats. I always want omegas. Sometimes I'll use berberine. I like berberine a lot, uh, but daily movements. So many people are seeing reduced step count, even you and I working from home, yeah, you know, like walk. we're, you just got to move. It's cardiovascular health is really underrated, especially in terms of managing health markers and lab work. And I, that's probably where I, I argue with a lot of my own clients is like, if you're not getting in at least enough cardio or, or energy expenditure per day to where I think we're going to be able to approach another phase safely, like we're not, we're just going to skip it. If you can't prioritize getting in basic cardio for health purposes, I'm not asking you to run a marathon. I'm not asking you to do an hour of Stairmaster a day, but just enough to help keep these markers in place. And it is a drastic improvement when we when we see that. And again, 
you know, the sources of dietary fats tend to be a big one. It's, I don't think most people particularly enjoy the plant-based fats that I have people add in. I've never gone for a snack and been like, man, I could sure go for some avocado <laughs> and almonds. Like that's nuts. never at the top of my list, but those little steps are things that can potentially yep. keep you off statins long-term and they, they do have an impact and, and it's quick too. bringing up HDL is definitely going to be a longer journey than just like reducing your LDL, but the lifestyle factors are huge in that. And even with added supplements, if you aren't taking, if you aren't paying attention to your sources of fats and you're not moving, you'll always have an issue with that. Yeah. So that, that's in terms of supplements, that's really all, all that I utilize specifically. I've never had to implement anything outside of that. Even people that, you know, might have certain predispositions and that's something that they've struggled with alone. Just even just omegas and movement can be. Yeah. yeah. Usually it'll fix most things. And then when we start kind of, you know, we we're going outside of just testosterone use and maybe we're looking at a competitor or somebody that's just really taking all the Anavar that's available from all these clinics. Mm -hmm. um, and we start looking at maybe some of the other risks associated and certain stressors that we see from injectables and orals. What are some of the standard approaches that you kind of look at or do you have any kind of blanket approaches or supplements that you do implement? Um. Well, I think the things to then start to look at would be kidney health, liver health. Obviously, cholesterol will be impacted. DHTs and orals especially will, will impact lipids uh, greatly. Certain 19 nors will do that as well. The, I mean, I would use things, well, things like orals should always be minimized. I know in the female population, there aren't as many options of injectable things that are used. And I know that women tend to want to jump on things like Anavar initially. Um, in men, at least, I would orals should only be used as a last case before a show. They shouldn't be used uh, um, sporadically throughout the year. That's something that I'm against. There's there's very little that they do that something that's injectable will do better. In most cases, um, and it's important to look at these things, right? Because kidneys go when kidneys start to go, they go, and there's not a lot of warning signs when they yeah. fail, right? Where liver you can generally see in someone's appearance and the way they feel when the liver starts to go. You have to really abuse your liver to make it, to make it go, but it, it can go over time. Uh, things like anadrol in men, really liver toxic, superdrol, winstrol, halo testing can be, but most people don't abuse halo testing for long enough or in high enough doses that really is going to cause a problem. Um, Anavar would be more, Kidney strain, but it's rare. I've seen it where it just, you know, EGFR kind of lowers from out of our use continuously a little, you know, if guys are using a hundred milligrams of it for six or eight weeks, it, it will, it will definitely put stress in your kidneys. Blanket statements. I, I feel like in that situation, when someone's using lots of performance enhancing drugs, it totally depends on the individual. I mean, again, that's when food becomes more important. Cardio becomes more important. Supplementation, supplementation becomes more important. All of these things are much more important in someone who's really using all those different drugs versus someone who's just on TRT. I think TRT patients need to have a foundation of health first and implement that daily. I think that someone who's actually abusing drugs needs to be really careful with what they do, right? It's about not drinking alcohol, not smoking, all, all of those things. Those are what's really going to kill somebody who's using steroids. And it's crazy how many people will still continue to to utilize 
you know, maybe recreational drugs and, and alcohol while also trying to leverage performance enhancing drugs and multiple compounds at that. I think that, and kind of what this all always circles back to, no matter what the conversation is or topic is going to go back to lab work and kind of having a background, background information on compounds. I know there's suddenly been an interest in certain aspects of pharmacokinetics and pharmacology because everybody's like, oh, well, now I'm a chemist because I like steroids. And we're seeing a rise in popularity. And, but unfortunately, when you only have a very elementary understanding and you're kind of lacking that that foundation, that's not always enough to maybe execute some of these, these cycles in a safe manner. And that's where it becomes very important to understand the risks of certain compounds. What certain, some compounds that people take can actually deplete your body of specific nutrients that might require supplementation while you're on yep. cycle. Like there's, you have to you, it is very important. And some people might look at my information or yours and be like, well, that's nerdy stuff. Like that's too much science. You don't need that much. Like nobody needs to know X, Y, and Z just to run, you know, test and master on, but realistically to be safe about it and get the most out of it. You do, you need to understand the potential effects of the compounds, potential drug interactions and going back to polling labs, you might not know if you have certain predispositions already, you know, maybe you haven't exposed yourself to some, something that would, would trigger something that'll impact your health markers. And a lot of people are hesitant to pull labs on cycle. They'll maybe do it before to make sure they're in a good starting point, And then maybe eight to 12 weeks after they've completed, which is a great starting point, but I encourage people to pull lab work while on cycle, how do you know where your estrogen is? We've had this discussion before. Can most people identify it? Not always. No. I mean, there are feelings associated with high and low, right? But I mean, is that, that's not a great barometer. It's not accurate. And you're not going to know what needs correcting if you're not able to pull blood work during that time frame. So it kind of always circles back to that. And if you start to see increases in certain markers or reductions in others, that kind of gives you a, a plan of action. So Yes, we can go in knowing what risks are there, maybe add in certain supplements to help mitigate those when applicable, but at the end of the day, you're not going to know unless no. you pull lab work. The only other one outside lab work that I would, men especially should be checking their blood pressure if they're using lots of androgens. Not necessarily, I mean, it's a good idea to know what your blood pressure is regardless, but I don't think that most men on TRT need to be checking regularly. But once men have implemented other, especially androgenic steroids, Blood, checking blood pressure is very important. There's a couple different things there that'll skew that. Okay. So that brings us to thyroid, which we've been discussing a lot this week. You put up a really good post and thyroid. Uh, I think the biggest, the, the biggest thing that I always try and reiterate to clients, especially if they've come to me after already being in a diet phase for a prolonged period of time is your body is going to have natural down regulations occur when you are in a deficit for a prolonged period of time. That's what your body is supposed to do. That is, it's doing its job. So sometimes we can pull thyroid labs and maybe certain things are not ideal. And this kind of circles back to, again, working with someone or a professional or a physician that actually specializes in this and knows how to interpret lab work. And this kind of circles back to estrogen to some degree, which is something mm -hmm. you posted on about earlier this week on your Instagram in a discussion we had. Do you want to kind of touch on that? Yeah. Well, with that, so like you were saying, I think it's very important if you have issues with your lab work that you work with the appropriate doctor on these things. So 
diagnose, diagnosing a thyroid issue is, is, is the job of an endocrinologist. It is not the job of a general practitioner. It's not the job of a podiatrist. It's not the job of a cardiologist. Everyone has their own specialty. Thyroid is very complicated, and there's a lot of things that interplay and affect the way the thyroid works. What I'm seeing specifically now is estrogen being out of range, and it's slowing thyroid down. And it usually shows in TSH on lab work. And because of this adversity to using an AI, a lot of the clinics are letting estrogen get really elevated and it's slowing the thyroid down. And whether it's done intentionally or not, they're using it to open the door to sell thyroid medicine to patients who don't need thyroid medicine. And that's a really dangerous road to creep down. If someone actually is hypo, has hypothyroidism, then medicine is needed. But for the large percentage of the population, it is not needed. It's thyroid disease is not that common. And in men, it's very rare because it's actually directly related to estrogen levels. So this is another reason why you don't want to just let your estrogen creep up crazy high because it will slow your thyroid down. Um, and it's directly responsible for a lot of these things, including thyroid cancer. Um, so I would be very weary when an online, one of these telemed or online clinics is trying to prescribe a man thyroid medicine, generally not what's needed. And I think there's a lot of confusion as well, especially because of the overprescription that we're seeing. There's a difference between less than optimal on anything, not just thyroid versus an, an actual hormonal imbalance or something like actual hypothyroidism. There, there's going to be a difference. And especially I, I've, I've actually had uh, clients come to me where they've worked with a telemed practice and they were told, they were terrified. They were told they had Hashimoto's. Yeah. So Hashimoto's there, they there, never pulled any antibody markers. Like there, there was yeah, which none of the labs were pulled. Of course. And so Hashimoto's is not that common, especially in men. I have seen it in men, but it's very obvious. Like you said, you can see it in those immune markers and in things like TSH, the numbers are usually ridiculous. They're in the 50s. They're very, very high. It's not mistakable. It's not like you might have a TSH of three or four and mm -hmm. I have Hashimoto's. It's not like I have a little bit extra fat around my waist and I have Hashimoto's. It is an actual medical issue that's not common. Um, and it's, it's relatively easy to diagnose if the right tests are run. But these clinics are not doing the right tests because they're not aware of how to test for these things. Right? At the end of the day, they're trying to sell supplements or medication. They're not that concerned with what the right diagnosis is. And even when we see the medications being prescribed, they're not having conversations no. about, you know, thyroid metabolism and, you know, goitrogenic foods and when, when to pair yeah. and when, when to avoid We're not seeing that part of the discussion with these prescriptions. Unfortunately, sometimes they're not even designated to be taken in fasted states or something no. that those conversations are frequently not had when you are being prescribed them in this specific scenario. And I think a lot of people, again, they don't necessarily understand how much you can improve thyroid through lifestyle choices, yeah, selenium and zinc supplementation, yeah, exactly. things like that. It, and they jump straight. Cause again, there, there's a big difference between dysfunction and an imbalance versus not optimal. 83% yeah, of Americans are deficient in iodine. So there, that could be part of the issue right there. People have slower, you know, than ideal thyroids. And again, this is where, you know, starting to play with hormones and, and compounds without a foundation or baseline understanding of even thyroid function. There's a lot of people that don't really understand even the relation 
of TSH yeah. to thyroid or, or where, where it's coming from, what it's signaling. Uh, so without that, that basic information, and then you just blindly accepting medications that are being offered you because you're not an optimal ranges. Again, diet, lifestyle, huge factors. So many people are going to think that they have sluggish, terrible thyroid function. And I'm like, well, you've been in a deficit for a year. You've been on like a Never crazy weight loss journey. Let's bump up food and we'll take care of that. Yeah. Yeah, it's called metabolic adoption. It happens at any diet. It will always hit a wall and it will oh, your body will compensate by slowing things down. That doesn't mean you've done damage. It's generally reversible. It's just you need a diet break, like you said. It's not jump on thyroid medicine. It's not t use, time to use T3. Yeah, Met metabolic adaptations can be both positive and, and negative. You know, I wouldn't have been able to consume what I eat right now 10 years ago. Absolutely, absolutely yeah. not. But I think the the biggest thing is not everything needs a pharmaceutical approach right away. But then in saying that, it will be grossly misinterpreted that you should never use a pharmaceutical compound. AIs are terrible and that you should only handle things naturally. Yeah. Or, or circumnavigate them with the wrong drugs, right? Like you're not going to fix an estrogen issue with the side effects from an estrogen issue by using telmosartan, you know, other ARBs or or, or other these numerous other drugs just to rather than use the proper drug like thyroid medicine rather than actually address the issue and sometimes addressing the issue is not fun sometimes it can be a journey and it can be expensive if you're paying out of pocket for labs it is it's just part of it though but again like you will you will have more longevity in in your health and your fitness journey as a competitor in any capacity if you are working from the ground up and you have all that foundation in place and you are making the lifestyle changes. It is not fun. I know we love to talk about compounds, but at the end of the day, it's really going to come down to nutrition, training, yep. cardiovascular health, and keeping certain baseline hormones balanced and within ranges to optimize everything yep. else. Yep, absolutely. Yeah. All the drugs in the world are not going to fix poor lifestyle habits. Is there anything else you want to add today? We'll go ahead and keep this one pretty short. I, I just think that people, if they're, if, if they have questions about their labs, you, you seek the appropriate medical care. Don't, don't just rely on what an online clinic is telling you to do, you know, based on their, their business model, the way they structure themselves, what products they're trying to push. You know, it's okay to ask questions. If they can't ask your, answer your questions appropriately about these things, then seek someone who can. And Kurt, you offer consultation calls do, as I well. As well. Yep. Same as you. Okay. Yep. And real quick, um, you have a new course out. Can you kind of tell us a little bit about that? And I'll put the information uh, uh, in, in big, the description. Big Paul and I did um, some learning modules online. So it's um, it's more geared at the moment toward the anabolic end of things. So we're, we're doing like the pharmacology of these drugs and the way steroid cycles are structured, why the different drugs work, how to combine them, when to use different drugs, when not to use certain drugs. Um, and just the reasoning behind all the craziness that, you know, bodybuilders do. Uh, um, and it's available. It's, there, there are all videos. There's 83 videos, I believe, at the moment. We will continue to add more. There will be, you know, well over 100 shortly. Uh, it's available on anabolicbodybuilding.com. We can put a link below. I'll do that. Cool. Thank you so much. Okay. Thank you so much for joining yeah, me today. Definitely. I'll see you next time. Take care, DJ.